Did you know 90% of top performers have a high emotional intelligence and a higher than average annual income? As one of the most highly valued skill sets, emotional intelligence or EI is what distinguishes outstanding leaders. Deepen your EI skills today with the Daniel Goleman Emotional Intelligence course, a 12-week online course to develop your inner capacity, become a stellar leader, and build high-performance teams. Save your seat and $50 with the coupon code PODCAST. Learn more at courses.keystepmedia.com. That's courses.key stepmedia.com. Don't forget to enter coupon code PODCAST at checkout for $50 off your registration. So how do you feel about changes when they happen? Sometimes I don't like them. Sometimes I do like them, sometimes I don't. It really depends on what's changing. Yeah, that's Uh how I feel. Let's come up with an example of a big change. A big change. Do you want a big sad change or a big happy change? I'd rather a big happy change, but a big sad change is fine. I prefer a big happy change, too. Big happy change. A big happy change. Um, oh, a big happy change when you celebrate? That's Sudoku. That was big and happy. <laughs> it wasn't a change, though, because I often yeah. complete my Sudoku. It's got to be like a change in where your life was one way before and then your life was another way after. Big happy change. Kindergarten, that felt pretty good. It was like, yay, I'm getting older, I'm going to get smarter. It was also a bit worried, like, what's my class going to be like? <laughs> uh-huh. Mm-hmm. And how did it end up feeling? Good. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It was like the best class. One of them. Most of the time it matters what's changing. Yeah. Like if something you really like or a person you really like and then something changes, if it changes to better, you might like that. Mm-hmm. Or if it changes to worse, you might probably not like that. Yeah. You think I know what you mean. Mm-hmm. Welcome to First Person Plural, Emotional Intelligence and Beyond. I'm Hanuman Goldman. I'm here with our EI correspondent, Elizabeth Solomon, to discuss the adaptability competence of emotional intelligence. Hi, Hanuman. Hey, Liz. I'm really looking forward to talking about this topic because not only does it relate to our last episode on ecological intelligence, but I think if there's one thing most of us around the world can agree on, it's that this past year has challenged us to be adaptable in ways we never thought we were going to have to be. So not only has the past year been one where we've all been forced to um, adapt. But I think many people are experiencing right now as we're coming out of the pandemic or coming out of this most acute version of the pandemic that we've changed as human beings, that isolation has changed us, that the past year has changed us, and that 
as we are emerging back into a social life and having, you know, the possibility of more FaceTime, the possibility of travel, I think there's a real question here of who are we now and how do we relate now to the things that were once familiar as this new version of ourselves? Um, Because I do think there's been an incredible amount of transformation for for many of us, um, things that we might not even be totally cognizantly aware of, and certainly plenty of transformation for our society. That feels right to me. And, and I think I'm pretty squarely in the camp that you just described where it feels like there's a lot of deep movement under the surface of my life. And I'm really not sure what's been happening. I, I, I think it'll take years uh, yeah. to really understand how, how things have changed internally for me alone and then thinking about how things have changed uh, for everybody and how that what that means for the world when we all come together again. Yeah, I think one of the first realizations I had in the pandemic was that I actually have more social anxiety than I knew I had. Um, and I'm a very extroverted person. I mean, I love being around people. I love uh, being in groups. I love traveling. And so that was actually like a pretty startling realization for me to notice um, kind of how much anxiety was spurred for me or how much energy I was giving away by these small interactions, right? Just all the goings about of the day to day. And once those things were peeled away, I started to have new realizations about where I'm really showing up um, in conversations that feel very connected or very authentic and what is actually quite a bit of small talk and emerging, you know, my daughter, um, just went back to school. And so I'm on the schoolyard again with all of these parents who many of whom are strangers. And, uh, I've been noticing, I'm like, I'm not really the same person that I was last year. And I can distinctly feel the difference between what it is to connect with someone who, you know, is, is a close friend or who I have rapport with, which are the people I've been connecting with over the past year versus showing up in these surface level conversations with, with strangers. And I don't say it's surface because those people are surface or because I'm surface. It's just sort of the small talk and schmoozing of what we do as humans on the planet who are just sort of building small relationships in, in many moments. It's hard for me to discern. Is it fear of getting a deadly virus or is it, is it a social anxiety? And now that I see it, I know where I am and I can, I can act with uh, intention. I can act with intention in any given social moment and maybe modulate. I'm sure I'll have to figure out how to hold it, how to relate to it properly in a healthy way. So I guess adaptability for me in this context is understanding where I am. Now I can make a proper decision how to be and where to go. Yeah, I also think one way I've been practicing adapting to the reintegration and the re-socialization is just even to be uh, more aware of what is it that makes me anxious um, and, and sometimes exhausts me through social situations. And what I've been noticing is um, 
wow, my attention in a social dynamic is in so many places of the room. Like there's a hypervigilance that I operate with that I think many people operate with, specifically people who have experienced any form of trauma. Um, and so I'm hyper attending to what is happening, right? What are, what are people saying? How might someone be feeling? And that hypervigilance is actually quite exhausting. And mm. so I was playing recently with what, what is it to draw my attention, um, closer to my own body and direct it, uh, to the person I'm actually in conversation with instead of having my awareness being so, um, spread thin. I love that. Thank you so much for this. Uh, that's exactly without understanding what I've been doing. I've, uh, in those moments when I feel this uh, tension or anxiety, I bring my attention to the experience in my my thighs, particularly if I'm sitting down is just an easy place for me to ground. I'm like, okay, here I am, here I am. And, and then it's, it's, it's that grounding in the uh, moment. This is what I what I'm feeling now. Now mm. I can respond because I know where I am. Mm. Thank you so much for saying that. So Hanuman, I feel like it's really important to add here that this is something we can really only begin to practice when we have some modicum of psychological safety. So pulling our attention back into ourselves and out from the environment, it's actually only possible when there isn't any real danger. For some people, attending to every detail of the environment, that kind of hypervigilance is a necessity because there's actually a very real threat. For example, if you're walking through a world that discriminates against you, where your life is constantly in danger, it's not always an option to withdraw your attention. Mm, thank you so much for saying that. So this is a perfect segue because what you're talking about is bringing the anxiety or bringing the present, uh, the, the real emotional experience out from under the carpet which is something Dan talks about in his next interview with Sanjay Rao Chaganti. So Sanjay is an executive coach. Um, and in this interview, he talks about working with his client, Layla, and this woman who had a vibrant career, which took her across many corners of the world. And she returns home to realize that she no longer fits into her old world the way she did before. So let's dive in and listen to Dan talking with Sanjay. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the podcast. This is Daniel Goleman, and uh, I'm in a continuing series of talking to coaches and leaders about the emotional intelligence competencies. Uh, today, our topic is adaptability, flexibility in handling change, juggling multiple demands, adapting to new ideas or approaches. People with adaptability stay focused on their goals, but easily adjust how to get there. You can meet new challenges well, and you're nimble in adjusting to sudden change if you have the adaptability competence. And basically, you're comfortable with the uncertainty that leadership inevitably brings. Today, my guest is uh, Sanjay Rao Shiganti, who's coming to us from Chennai, uh, which um, is about 12 hours later than where I am in the East Coast. But I, I'm very happy to have Sanjay here today. He's 25 years of experience living and working in 
the U.S. and Africa and Asia, leading and supporting cross-cultural teams and large enterprises. He's returned to his native Chennai after about 20 years, and now he focuses on one-on-one coaching and group workshops on emotional intelligence. His credentials include being certified by Corn Ferry Hay Group in the emotional and social competence inventory so that he can base work in part on the uh, profiles and so on of emotional intelligence that he gets from that inventory. And he's been using it along with other tools, of course, with senior staff in Zimbabwe, in the States, in India. Sanjay, welcome to the podcast, and I'm very interested in the work you've been doing with Layla. Could you tell us about her? Well, uh, thanks, Daniel. Delighted to be on the show. My work with Layla began a couple of years ago. Uh, Primarily, she is an incredibly talented, capable professional, worked around the world. And she came back to her home country for a variety of reasons, and she took up a new role uh, there as sort of country country advisor to a large organization. And it was a reputable organization and a very prominent and sort of uh, a role which uh, people looked up to. Uh, however, she found in a few weeks uh, that she didn't really enjoy the role. And that's when she turned to me and uh, we started having a series of conversations. Uh, and that, that's uh, really you know, how our journey started. So she's had a, a vibrant career, it sounds like. She comes back to her homeland, takes a job. She's looking forward to it. And she finds that it doesn't quite fit her. Is that basically it, that she's unhappy? And by the way, this is not a rare situation. I think it's pretty common that uh, people will be attracted to a job that doesn't really quite work for them. So uh, what did you do as a coach with her? Well, I sort of recognized that uh, what Leila was going through was, as you rightly put it, was very natural. Uh, she was a sort of, you know, it was a re-entry almost. Think of a spaceship which sort of comes, a rocket which comes back into the atmosphere, sort of the re-entry uh, friction which, uh, which sort of uh, it experiences as it go, comes through the atmosphere. And so she coming back to her own country and coming back to a country which she thought was familiar but still alien because she'd been away. So uh, I'd say my work with her was really, uh, in, uh, really speaking sort of uh, three different roles which I uh, sort of all three areas where one focused upon. First was sort of uh, getting her to sort of unpack or accept and acknowledge that the uh, shifting sands that she felt, uh, first of all, just fully acknowledging it and embracing it. Because we tend to have sometimes a tendency, as you know all too well, to sort of uh, put things under the carpet and we, you know, and put it on the rug and sort of hope that it will go away. But just pulling it up front, looking at it and embracing it was really sort of the first step. Um, the second uh, was a deep dive into her own values as a professional. Um, and it was important for us to go down that journey because to remind her of why she was doing what she was doing and how this particular decision fit into her larger sort of life path or her values as such. And that was an important transformational moment, really, because it reminded her of that what she really values being a problem solver. 
She loved leading teams. She loved being a creative person who thought out of the box. And, you know, more than anything else, she loved the fact that she could demonstrate impact and value addition, if not on a daily basis, at least on a weekly basis. And her new role actually did not cater to those particular uh, motivators which sort of drove her. So that was really, uh, uh, you know, the crux of the coaching relationship. So, uh, in other words, you you helped her name it and accept what the problem was. That absolutely name it, accept it, and sort of go deeper within it. And because typically uh, we all tend to sort of stick to what is uh, available to us at our surface, uh, but once one you know sort of takes a deep dive within. Uh, then our, we give space to our subconscious to throw up what is really alive for us and what is something that is, uh, you know, either holding us back or really nurturing and something which is really wanting to come out but hasn't give, been given an opportunity. And that's where you went to the uh, values level. What, how, how does this fit with her sense of purpose, her dreams, where, where she wanted to go, how she saw herself and what mattered to her? Absolutely. In that came up... Uh, one particular issue was she was struggling with a relationship with her supervisor and uh, she was bearing a grudge and it's this uh, and that didn't come up right up front but it was only when she sort of was willing to go within uh, that that surfaced and it was a block. Could you uh, tell us a little more about what was the uh, nature of this fractured relationship with her supervisor? You say she bore a grudge but what had happened? Essentially, early into her uh, into her job, she lost uh, the organization lost a client, and while the uh, all the verbal cues given by her supervisor and the other senior members of the organization uh, indicated that uh, it was not her fault, uh, all the sort of subtle and nonverbal cues and the you know signs she got was that you know fingers were pointed at her. Wow, that's a big one. Yeah. Yeah, and a big client. And this is very early on into her sort of tenure in this new position. So this sort of uh, double, it's not double standard. It's kind of, you know, uh, I'm not telling you. Uh, so she felt that she was, uh, there was a lack of authenticity and a lack of being supported at that point where she felt that she was actually sort of already in a hard spot working in this very harsh environment. Sanjay, I'm just thinking of research that shows that having a bad relationship with your immediate boss is one of the strongest factors in whether you feel good or bad about the, what you're doing in your job. So she must have been in a terrible situation. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So here was, uh, you're absolutely right. And, you know, so, um, but again, what was what was remarkable about uh, Leila was that, you know, once she... Uh, sort of got into the coaching engagement, although they, you know, that wasn't something that she presented as one of the agendas that she was grappling with. When it surfaced, she was totally willing to go into it and sort of, as I said, a deep dive into it. Uh, and just by her, I would say her flexibility and adaptability to go within and look at these different dimensions of things within herself that were bothering her uh, and just bringing it up to light. Um, and as you know all too well, Daniel, you know, you know a very strong foundations of sort of uh, a lot of the Eastern traditions, uh, traditional practices, is that even if you just observe what is bothering you, 
uh, it tends to minimize its impact. Well, I think that's the power of what's being called mindfulness now, which is so popular in business, where uh, you adopt this neutral observing position for the thoughts and feelings that come up spontaneously, which lets you see more than you ordinarily could. And I love the fact that you're using adaptability and flexibility in a dimension where it's not usually pointed to, and that is within. That when you get stuck, what's being what's stuck is your attitude, is your habits, is your thoughts, is your feelings. You uh, you may ruminate, you may run over and over the same, uh, you know, complaints in your mind or injustices, whatever it is. But it leaves you, as Layla was very stuck, and so your approach to coaching went inside. Uh, and encouraged her to embrace the shadow, to to look at the parts of her that were stuck, that, that were not adapting to the situation, that were making her uh, actually unhappy. So that's a very powerful approach and an interesting dimension to adaptability itself. So where'd you go from there? I will say where Layla went from there. And, you know, all kudos to her on this, really, as front, because she's, uh, and, uh, you know, once she sort of shown the light within herself, as you rightly pointed out, uh, what holds us back often is the stories that we constantly tell ourselves and the sort of uh, neuroplasticity that sort of emerges as a result of this sort of constant uh, storytelling. Well, uh, let, let me unpack something very important you just said. Uh, you used the word neuroplasticity, which is a very important concept for, for coaches, for anyone. And it's simply the idea that the brain strengthens circuits that are used repeatedly. So if you're caught in one of these negative loops, oh, my boss doesn't understand me. Uh, people are blaming me for losing the client. I'm imagining what Layla might have been telling herself. Uh, and the more you think about it, actually the stronger the circuitry for that becomes, which means you're more likely to recruit other thoughts and other feelings that support it. And you're more likely to loop around that. And this, you know, this can become the kind of thing you wake up to in the morning thinking about and worrying about. So it's very important for a coach to understand uh, that helping people shake free from that or identify it in the first place is a step toward changing, toward adaptability. Yeah. And so with respect to Leila, uh, you, you know, you use the phrase embracing the shadow. And that is one of the coaching pathways uh, that worked really well with her, because when she was willing to look and say that, OK, first, I really not just acknowledging, but really embracing that these are parts of me which may not look very nice. But I fully recognize and appreciate that I am I am bothered. I am irritated with my supervisor. In fact, I'm really pissed off and angry with with this person. Uh, it was at that point that she was able to sort of, I would say, uh, it was a transformation moment because then one is able to transform emotionally laden judgments into more uh, sort of objective observations. Uh, and these are observations about how you are respond, re reacting, not necessarily responding to a situation. This is a, a tactic and strategy that's used very commonly, as you may know, in cognitive therapy, where people who are depressed or chronically anxious will start to look in a more mindful way at, at the patterns that come up and identify the feelings and the thoughts that are triggering how they're behaving. And it seems that you're doing a similar thing with Layla, though you may not have thought of it in those specific terms. 
So it was really creating the space uh, with some questioning, a combination of a nurturing environment, but sort of incisive questioning, which any you know decent coach would uh, would create that space. Uh, was for her to sort of look within. And, you know, when you continue this conversation over a period of time, it became apparent to her that uh, what she was, where she was operating from was not from her strengths. And so we went back a little dive, deep dive into, okay, so if you're not operating from your strengths, what are your strengths? And, you know, that's when you sort of, uh, at least in this particular case, the car turned in the path that she wanted to go, in a positive path. And her strength had been, first and foremost, adaptability. I mean, this is a woman who went off to grad school in Europe, then worked in a regional role around the world, and then had come back on her own volition uh, back to her home country. And so in different roles in, in the commercial sector, in the, in the uh, not-for-profit sector, she had you know, played multiple roles. Um, and that adaptability combined with her you know, great sense of purpose and passion, which drives Layla. And those had sort of, uh, you know, gotten uh, submerged under this uh, cloud of negativity. Well, you said that she was working for a, a nonprofit. So uh, that passion, was it directed toward helping people? Was it um, what I sometimes call empathic concern, where you not only tune in to people's suffering, but you actually want to help them? Was, was that what was driving her? Oh, absolutely. Uh, that's, that came out when even in her value statement, you know, going back to her work in, at the high school level, that clearly came out as a very strong uh, uh, driver for her. Even when she was working in the commercial sector in, in, uh, in a transportation sector in Europe, uh, but she was always looking for ways to contribute and give back to society. Uh, so that's a very strong motivation. Uh, how did you uh, help her ad uh, become more adaptable in this particular situation with that understanding? Helping her bring to the surface what was challenging her, uh, which is step one. Step two was really what is her sort of long-term values? And then step three were what is now her strengths that she would like to leverage uh, and make sure that, you know, these strengths, that she was actually aligning herself to her strengths so that she could uh, sort of be in pursuit of her or in alignment with her long-term values as such. So, so you uh, helped her, if I could reframe this, get in touch with a more positive self-concept, one that would give her confidence and a sense of strength and purpose instead of focusing on what was wrong. You're helping her see what's right. You know, when we were doing a debrief towards the end, she said, you helped me regain my confidence. Ah, there you go. And then she was able to tap into her innate uh, you know, adaptability. Uh, and then she sort of made a couple of key decisions, uh, which are bo you know, both for the immediate short run, but also for the long run to uh, sort of put her in path uh, on the right path of her sort of her long-term values as such. How did she use that adaptability to change anything about her role or her relationship with her supervisor? So, I, you know, the first thing, and, you know, kudos to her, was really once she embraced these, you know, and recognized her values and strengths, she said, this is not the job for me. And so she began a conversation 
with two different groups of people. One was her direct supervisor and one were a sort of uh, board members and other stakeholders in the organization that she was working with. And uh, lo and behold, as these things happen, once you sort of set the ball, uh, the wheels in motion, uh, an opportunity presented itself. A colleague uh, was stepping out and going back to the U.S., and although this position was in theory, uh, in some people would have seen it as a step down, it was sort of as a technical director of, of this large organization. And it was a hands-on sort of senior manager role in which she had now a large team that she works with. She has... Uh, autonomy and authority as well as resources at her disposal uh, and she is able to actually operate not just at a strategic level which was her previous job but actually get down and dirty into implementation and this sort of checked off the box not just of sort of being a problem solver and being a creative person uh, and working with teams but also met her very strong need for contribution to society and uh, ability to interact with uh, the poor and the vulnerable or uh, in a more enhanced manner than her at a more strategic level, uh, sort of, uh, she was able to make that switch. So she took on this position and she's thriving there. And that's what is, uh, you know, in a very strong male-dominated uh, work environment. Uh, she still has its challenges, uh, but uh, it, she is able to operate from a sense of uh, uh, positivity and being upbeat rather than sort of uh, uh, being defensive or, or, you know, basically operating below par as such. So she was flexible enough to see that even though she had a higher status role uh, by title, she would be happier and be able to use her abilities as well as fulfill her sense of purpose and meaning by going into a different role, technical advisor. Yeah, absolutely. And it was interesting in our coaching conversation, uh, the metaphor that came up was uh, uh, Muhammad Ali's famous rope-a-dope trick when he lay back. And he said, you know, sometimes you just got to lay back and be ready and when the opportunity presents itself to come up and pounce. And she was willing to lay, lay back and uh, absorb whatever maybe the social criticism of taking up this sort of position which was uh, one step below. Uh, but yeah, the flexibility was tremendous on her front. And what happened with her uh, supervisor? Yeah, that was also very interesting. Um, so once she recognized that she was bearing this grudge uh, and uh, she was able to again come to f uh, face with it uh, and and accept it, and that acceptance was really quite beautiful. Actually, uh, I would say it's beautiful because it allowed her to first and foremost acknowledge to herself the hurt that she was feeling, and only when she gave herself the space to feel that hurt. Uh, she did something, you know, in our coaching conversation, you know, we said, when I asked her a question, what would you like to do with this hurt? And she said, you know what, I'd like to just share it with my supervisor. And she wrote a note to her supervisor, which was, uh, I think, a very special note because it didn't point fingers. It didn't say you did this. It just said, 
I felt like this. Sanjay, this is so important. Uh, when people feel hurt, angry, frustrated, and, and reach out to the person uh, that's the object or the cause, uh, so often they do it from an amygdala hijack where they're caught in, uh, you know, you did this to me. In other words, they're blaming, they're attacking, but she was able to do it from a very different point of view, which is simply saying, I felt this. I, she was taking responsibility for her feelings in the situation, which is very different because that allows someone else uh, not to feel defensive because they're being attacked, but rather to be open and reach out. What, what did the supervisor do? The supervisor was first surprised and said, this was not my intention. And, uh, you know, we always... Uh, uh, you know, and this came up in our coaching conversations that we often judge ourselves by our intentions and judge other people by their behaviors. <laughs> That's very well put. Yeah. And in your work with the competencies, you rightly, you know, you, you endorse the value of self-awareness as being sort of the pivot uh, under which the competencies are built. And this was clearly the case. Once she became self-aware, she shared it with the supervisor. Supervisor herself then became a lot more self-aware that, aha, maybe this is what has happened. Um, and, uh, you know, she, they met up actually, uh, and she said, oh, you know, she, they had a great conversation, uh, for the first time, really an open, uh, no holds barred conversations of expectations and supervisor too was able to share, some, you know, what, her personal disappointments and, the, and in an oblique manner, share some of the pressures that she felt, uh, because of losing that client as well. Uh, and so they're in a much happier spot than they were uh, a few months ago. And it began with uh, what's sometimes called a nonviolent communication, where you simply oh, yeah. share openly how I feel rather than make assumptions or attack uh, and claim, you know, you did this to me. It's when that happened. I felt like this. Is that right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, you. I, I you just stole the words from my mouth here, Daniel. Because you know, I just gone through a ten-day uh, nonviolent uh, communication program and what is called an intensive uh, international training. And it was from that that I had picked up this sort of wonderful language of communication, where you sort of uh, you express your needs and the feelings. Uh, and leave it at that without, and then give space for the, for the listener to process and then respond in a manner that is appropriate to him or her. And so the tenets of NVC or nonviolent communication played out beautifully here. Yes, and I think that they allow people to exhibit the emotional intelligence competencies uh, at a higher level. It's a very effective tool in nonviolent communication uh, for any coach and uh, for anybody, you know, for husband or wife or parent, they're also useful. At, at any rate, let's, let's um, uh, see now if you could tell us what's happened to Layla since then. Where is she now and how is it going? Well, I'd say three things, what has happened to her. One is she is in this new role. She wakes up excited every morning because she knows clearly what a problem there is to solve. As I said, being a problem solver is what is her sort of where she gets her high from. And so she's doing that. She has this improved relationship, which is then allowed her to operate from a position of strength rather than fear and uncertainty. And it's, a, as I said, a very tense uh, and it's tough work environment 
even without the challenge of a of a of a troubled relationship with a supervisor. So, you know, she's sort of uh, been able to uh, move the ball forward in that sense, and. Uh, uh, you know, make things happen which, because she feels confident about her, about herself and her relationship. And finally, which I was really, really uh, happy to hear, creativity is something that she was really passionate about, but had put on the back burner. And she's brought it right up front and enrolled in a program, a long distance program uh, with a prominent U.S. university uh, to pursue creativity and leadership. And uh, that's something that's really ignited a spark within her that uh, it's so beautiful to see. That's that's wonderful. Thank you, Sanjay, for uh, being with us and sharing with us how you helped Layla fulfill her dream. Yeah, thank you. I was thinking a lot about adaptability as we prepared to have this conversation and asking myself, what is it that helps me personally cope with change? The path of ease is to actually unite with that change and surrender to that change in some way. And there is this piece of acknowledging that there is like a trajectory for us as a collective in terms of what I would call our collective consciousness that um, is often outside the realm of my human understanding. Liz, I'm right there with you. I love that because how I heard the last thing you just said is that ultimately you don't know what's going on and that you, that actually is comforting for you, that, that uh, there is something far bigger than anything that we could comprehend. Uh, and it's not for us to know. I find with all of these things, like especially all of the EI competencies, every single one of them has their shadow side, right? Which, mm -hmm. and, and that dovetails so well with even what this episode is about, just to acknowledge that everything in the universe has a shadow side. Um, and we get so attached to trying to look at the bright and shiny side of everything. Um, but I think the shadow side of adaptability can be this sense of like, oh, the goal is just to like roll with it and like see the positive and just like go with mm. whatever's happening, right? When the truth is, is that some of the things that are happening are not okay, are not fair, are not just, um, are violent, our lives can be in danger. And so I do think there's like a fine line there. The piece that you're pointing to, we have to accept the terrible things that are happening for real. They are reality. And that doesn't mean that we have to accept that they have to continue to happen. It doesn't mean that we can just throw up our hands and not bother to move things in a direction towards equity for everybody. The other piece of the interview I think was really interesting was um, Dan and Sanjay talk about conflict and the role of self-management and adaptability, right? The role of managing our amygdala hijacks. And they talk about coming into a conflict from a place of you did that to me versus coming in from a place of I felt this or I experienced this. And I just wanted to highlight that because I think this is like a really tangible thing that we can all practice. And I find myself having to practice it all the time. The 
desire or propensity to point fingers and to other and to ostracize and to think in polarities um, is so intense. We have to fight that all the time. Right. Mm -hmm. And in a way, transitioning to a sense of, I feel this is that sweeping things out from under the carpet in an emotional sense. I think um, when I experience myself locked in resistance oftentimes on the other side of that is that there's something I need to acknowledge I'm feeling. And then I actually just break down in tears and then there's a release mm -hmm. and something can um, be welcome to the surface in order to transform. But I thought that that was a really beautiful part of what they were talking about. You sound so healthy in that way that you allow yourself to feel those things. I have a therapist now that's helping me understand uh, my my habits and uh, how I have historically approached understanding and like processed things. It's a real uh, spiritual bypass. And I think for me, part of being adaptable is starting with, okay, where am I experiencing resistance? What can I just surrender to and say, okay, this just is. And then it's like that cathartic cry or that moment of release comes, right? When I'm like, oh, I'm actually feeling a lot of sadness or a lot of fear or, you know, a lot of anger. Hmm. And it's like, once I can allow that thing to come out from under the carpet, then I can be like, okay, what are my choices? What do I want to do in order to feel a different way or approach this in a different way. So I think it's a both and adaptability doesn't always end at the acceptance. I think adaptability and empathy can be misconstrued as having no boundaries um, or giving over our personal will or giving over mm. our personal agency in a moment. And that's actually a very kind of limited um, one-sided way of looking at it. Right. So again, like none of these competencies stands alone in an isolated moment, everything's part of a process, right? So like, how do we cultivate that sense of surrender? And then how do we assert ourselves um, and make choices? Two things jumped out at me about what you just said. One was that, you know, accepting isn't the end. That's just the beginning of adaptability. That's where you learn where you're standing. Once you know where your feet are placed, then you can survey the area and decide consciously which direction to step towards that's the adaptability okay here's where we are I, I, I wish we were somewhere else i want to be somewhere else i thought i was somewhere else but whoa oh no i'm actually right here and things are like this okay now i can move to a different place now i now i can see oh that's the way that i want to go because i gotta get the fuck out of here i don't like it here but this is how it is right the other thing that got me ooh, excited was the balance between the individual, my needs, my world, and my understanding of what's important with this larger understanding that it's not all about me. Everybody else in the world has this same thing that they're trying to balance their needs and not just the other humans, like the animals and the plants and everything is, is, is a part of what's going on here. Everything's a part of the conditions. Mm -hmm. And so balancing my needs and my values with that of everything is a real dance, you know. Do you have a good example of where you feel most challenged in your life around um, being adaptable? Well, it's so easy to come up with 
examples with kids because they demand adaptability in every moment. Like I'm trying to put on clothes after a bath and, and that is demanding adaptability because yeah. it turns out that the other person involved also has this game that needs to be played. As a parent, I'm always trying to balance. I don't want to crush my, the will of my children and be like, we're putting on clothes, not playing. You know, that's not, that's not who I am anyways. I want to put on clothes and play. I was going to say, talk about adaptability. I mean, kids are like living in a moment to moment awareness, right? So everything, it's like they are walking, breathing adaptability. They're like, oh, yeah. that small thing on the counter caught my eye. Now I'm going to go over there and do that thing. You know what I mean? And it's like, we're still looking at this end goal of like, you got to get your clothes on and like be yeah. go out into the world. You know, yeah. I think, um, the, the parenting thing is also so ripe for, for me. And I've been thinking about this a lot because I grew up an only child and my parents, um, divorced when I was two. And so I was always in a situation where it was just me and one other adult in the home mm -hmm. at any given point as I went back and forth. And so a lot of things centered around my needs and wants, and I had a lot of alone time and things generally went in my direction, um, because there just weren't a lot of competing needs, you know? Yes. And now I live in a house with four <laughs> kids and, you know, I live in a house of six people and it has been one of the most challenging personal spiritual growth moments of my entire life. And I always get stuck on it because I wouldn't, I've never saw myself as someone who isn't adaptable. Like I've made some decisions to throw myself into pretty chaotic situations. Like I've traveled a lot in countries where I don't know the language. I have no idea about the systems. I don't know what's going on. I get off an airplane. Um, and I approach those situations with like, yeah, I'm excited. There's a sense of adventure. I don't need to know what's going to happen. I'm willing to surrender control. But it's the difference between going into a situation where I've taken control by saying I'm willing to let go of control and how that feels versus in my home where I'm like, it's a Saturday and I just want to read a book. What are you talking about? All five of you have some kind of other need that I need to attend <laughs> to. That's not what I went in saying I wanted to do. And so it's sometimes I think it's not as easy as just sitting with chaos or sitting with change. It's much more I struggle with um, this piece around being interrupted. And I think I notice how much I'm already consistently in my daily life, like planning out my agenda, you know, thinking in terms of my own needs. Okay, well, I need this much rest. What, ha you know, now one of the kids is up at 530 in the morning and I'm so angry that my sleep time got interrupted. Right. And I think this is where the, the empathy thing comes in to the adaptability piece, which is like, mm -hmm. okay, why, why am I being interrupted? I'm, I can like very narcissistically be quick to be like, this person's trying to disrupt me instead of thinking, here's a kid who like was having nightmares and couldn't sleep well. Right. Oh my God. So many times my impulse to react to my kid, uh, is frustration because I have another agenda in that moment. And in the moments when I have the presence of mind to be, to just, instead of reacting to take a minute and look at them and see what's going on. I'm always so grateful that I took that moment to recognize them as a, another being with their own needs in that moment, the competency of 
emotional balance is so critical mm -hmm. and that comes from self-awareness and then i once i understand where i'm at how i'm responding to a moment in order to adapt keeping it together while you're shifting around while you're pivoting there's a piece that i was thinking about earlier about um when change asks us to loosen our grip on a portion of our identity and so thinking about some change initiates, I think, within us a little bit of an identity crisis. Like if this thing changes or if things go in this direction, will I still be me uh, or what I know to be me? And I think this came up in our last episode on ecological intelligence. And we were talking about consumerism and the things that we choose to buy um, and how much of our identity is entwined in what we purchase and what we own and what we have, right? And so we have a lot of resistance. Um, I mean, talk about sweeping things out from under the carpet. I think part of the ecological crisis too is we're like, wow, that's really scary. And actually I have like a tremendous amount of grief about mm. what's happening to the planet that is like, feels like I can't even look at it, right? So here might be another good example of like sweeping that grief out from under the carpet, looking at it, feeling it, and then thinking critically in order to make changes or like assert my personal will or my personal agency to do something that, you know, I, I know is more ecologically sound. What am I afraid of letting go of when I make that choice? Um, and I don't always think it's as simple as like, well, I like this cookie over that cookie, or I like this color over that. I think it's much more rooted um, in something deeper about how we identify in the world, particularly when it comes to things that we purchase or buy or material objects that we falsely think represent who we are. If you're interested in learning more about adaptability and the other emotional intelligence competencies, go to our website, keystepmedia.com. We have a set of 12 primers called the building blocks of emotional intelligence. Each one of them is on a different EI leadership competency. That's at keystepmedia.com shop. Thanks for listening to First Person Plural, Emotional Intelligence and Beyond. Subscribe now and sign up for our newsletter to get notified as new episodes are released. This show is brought to you by our co-hosts, Daniel Goleman and Hanuman Goleman, and is sponsored by Keystep Media, your source for personal and professional development materials focused on mindfulness, leadership, and emotional intelligence. Special thanks to Ezra and Levi, whose voices you heard at the top of the show, and to today's guest, Sanjay. For guest bios, transcripts, and resources mentioned in today's episode, check out our episode notes on our website, firstpersonplural.com. This episode was written and produced by Gabriela Acosta and me, Elizabeth Solomon. Episode art and production support by Bryant Johnson. Music in this episode includes theme music by Amber Ojeda. Until next time, be well.
If you enjoyed today's episode, please rate our show and submit a review. It helps us spread the word about the show. If you want to go the extra mile to support our show, you can become a patron. For as little as $5 a month, you can get exclusive access to extended interviews and behind-the-scenes content. Sign up at patreon.com slash firstpersonplural.